Hi everyone, I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to Poetry and Conversation. We're very happy that you joined us this evening. Tonight, we're excited to welcome two talented writers, Grace Cavallari and Richard Hartice. Uh, each poet is going to read, and then we'll have a joint Q&A, so that's why the table is there. Um, and then there will be time for you to mingle and support them by buying their books, which are on sale in the hallway. So first, we will have Grace Cavallari. Uh, her forthcoming book, which is here today, is Other Voices, Other Lives. Grace has been a part of the writing and poetry community for a long time. She's the founder and producer of Public Radio's The Poet and the Poem, now from the Library of Congress. Um, it's like a dream job talking with poets all the time. Um, she's celebrated, uh, celebrates 40 years on air and is a CPB silver medalist. Um, in 2015, Grace received the inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award from the Washington Independent Review of Books, where she's a monthly columnist and reviewer. Um, you just, you'd have to say that poetry inspires a host of media. So please give a warm welcome to Grace Cavallari. And thank you for this Charlie Brown Band-Aid, which just is the perfect thing, a little accessorized. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I love Baltimore. And um, as she said, this is my new book, Other Voices, Other Lives, and I'm going to read for 15 minutes. And it's a compendium of poetry, of excerpts of my plays, and interviews from the Library of Congress. And uh, the thing I like about it is because as I wrote a book of poems, I then uh, changed that into a play. So I'm going to read some Anna Nicole Smith, and there's a play about Anna Nicole Smith in here. I'm going to read some Mary Wollstonecraft, and there's a play about Mary Wollstonecraft that's excerpted here. So one can see how the poems have morphed into a quite a different, the dramatic form. And so I'll begin with Anna Nicole Smith. And how many people even know who she is? Oh, I knew some people wouldn't, though unless you watch trash TV like I do. And Anna Nicole Smith was really the most, the saddest person, celebrity, that I think I've ever heard of. She had less connections than Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Jane Mansfield. She really had no network whatsoever. She was considered a train wreck. They filled her with drugs and propped her up like a bimbo and made her a buffoon on her reality show. I saw her when she had her baby without makeup, and I knew what she could have been. And so I wrote some poems about her, and then I wrote a play that vindicated her. And she was very happy about that. I had a dream where she hugged me. So I'm going to start with some Anna Nicole Smith poems, and this first one's called Anna's Estate. At the Half Star Hotel, the lower lip is painted bigger to match her dreams of being a star. She blessed the lumpy beds, bought her own silk sheets. This was before the moral issues, the legal issues, the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, the causes of death, junkies, drug addicts, probable criminal cause, bodies exhumed, frozen sperm, mystery sons, living in sorrow, wrongful death, undue influences. Before the opalescent oceans, 
where she could never find the truth in things, where she wanted a photo album so bad so she wouldn't die without memories. One day, standing at the free continental breakfast, dragging her sleeve in the jelly, someone walked by, touching her waist like a prayer, like an enfranchisement, and she was on her way in a dress made for someone much smaller, trusting a stranger because he said, the good Lord can't see what happens in Hollywood. So here's something that we know is that she was just battered by everyone who ever came in contact with her. And this is called Notes from a Distant Glacier. Interviewer, do you want to be someone of worth or do you want to be famous? Designer, if they photograph you nude, it's called art. Critic, they should project her on the wall, the one way far behind us. Trainer, in life there can only be one winner. Mother, would you please sit like a normal person? Manager, take a pill. For God's sake, any pill, just do it. Doctor, no medicine can make you stop feeling. Lawyer, don't even think about it. Anna, death doesn't care about you. You owe it to the world to make it pretty. Director, give them heart, give them breast. Lover, being a blonde beauty doesn't make you a whore necessarily. Anna looks out the window. She sees the pink azalea outside, so pretty, that color, so perfect. It must be fake. And this is called an even more than that. Anna was tired of her coloring book. She took a big, fat crayon and wrote shit all over the white wall. Then the pavement outside. Shit, shit, shit. She now knew what it was to be a writer. It felt good, cleaned out. Maybe she could write a whole book with her red crayon. That night she went out to dinner with the old man. He brought his daughter along. He held his arm around the dolly so tight. Anna tried to pry his fingers off, but it was no use. Her hunger flapping like a wet towel. Not his actions that saddened, but the flat, wet hand of grief against the hot cement of her heart. That's why she was glad she was now a writer, insinuating herself upon the world, having her say. Hi, Sid. Um, fall morning. Negative capability. Why not be happy, the counselor said. Try to be creative. Make things. Creation is a divine collaboration with God, so why not try to do something useful? Use your hands. Why not, thought Anna. Why not? She could start with banana bread. There were always rotten bananas around, and that's what it took. What a mess all over the kitchen, the squishing and buttery hands. Then she ate it. Where did it go? Where did everything always go? She wanted to play video games, but they were too fast for her eyes and hands. She almost wished she still played cheerleader in the afternoon for an old man, the game where she jumped up in a pleated skirt and yelled for his favorite team. He said she didn't have a choice in what he wanted to do with her. The difference between command and management, he said. Why not be happy, the counselor said just that morning. If she were a loser, like her mother always said, then where was the finder? Who would find her? And when? 
Once she heard on TV that if a, if a man rapes you, he steals your soul. That had always stuck with her. That's why she always gave in to men, so she wouldn't have to be raped, so she could save her soul. Dear Anna, group therapy. The fat therapist in a red jumpsuit asked what made each one happy. Anna said a hit of Coke and a shot of tequila. Then she flushed hot, everyone laughing. She thought she was allowed to tell the truth, how she lied on the manager's expense sheets, slept with people's husbands. She thought she could unburden the grief, but now she would shut up. The hell with this. Rescinda could just bring back her makeup kit and her Vera Wang gown. Anna stormed out. The sign on the doctor's door said, if you walk through hell, you can climb your way to paradise. Dante. She would make an appointment with this Dr. Dante and settle his hash. So, um, dear Anna, um, does hire a man to love her. <laughs> that didn't work out well either. And you'll see um, how that works out. But we're going to move from Anna Nicole now. The next thing, the only thing I could go to next was Mary Wollstonecraft. And I don't know if everyone knows who she is, but she was the first woman to write a book in English of argumentative prose. She was the first woman to have um, an article in a, in a newspaper. She was the first woman to argue about the French Revolution, the American Revolution, to debate with men, to stand shoulder to shoulder with men. And she was burned in effigy by Edmund Burke. She was a big deal. But here's the thing. She just wanted men's love. And that was not a good thing, to try to stand shoulder to shoulder to them and still love, want a man's love. So my whole world with Mary Wollstonecraft was um, a journey with that conflict. So I'll start reading a couple of these poems. The first is called Dear Reverend Clare, and he lived down the street and taught her how to read and write. Now, when I wrote the play, you have to make things much more convoluted. So in the play, I have her manip having already learned how to read and write on her own and manipulating him to get out of the house. But this is the way it probably really was. Dear Reverend Clare, you ask if hope gets me up in the morning. I say yes, not in your house where everything exists, but in mine where all things are lost. The top latch takes the weight of the door, and so it is true, as I teach Liza and Everine all that you teach me. You say my child's sense of wonder is coupled with a grown person's knowing grief. And why shouldn't it be? You are talking to a girl with a pencil hidden in a broken cup on top the highest shelf, stained by curdled cream, behind a ceramic picture where it cannot be thrown away. She uh, got out of the house to be um, a governess and got fired because she taught Lady Kingsborough that her little girls were as good as anybody's, and that didn't go over well. And then she wrote, Am I Afraid to Be a Woman of Significance? Because self-doubt, of course, was she had no one really supporting her. Am I afraid to be a woman of significance? 
The fear of blindness is worse than the fact. Rousseau ridicules us. Educate women, and the more they resemble our sex, the less power will they have over us. Power over them is not what I seek, but power over ourselves. We are like little cucumbers, row upon row, gleaming, ready to be cut, sugared, or baked. The moral life is to see the harvest, the peeling, be the knife. The self as source, London with a job of my own and a flat with old walls. I get up earlier than most men. I write. All day I write for other people. Do our dreams affect our days or do our days affect our dreams? I would like someone waiting for me. I long for a cup of tea. The light is on the wall. It falls on my plain wooden bed, the gray curtain. Teach yourself how to think, Mary, for no one else will do it for you. Be the knife. Um, she fell in love with William um, Gilbert Imlay, who was an American journalist, and she had a child, his child, out of wedlock, but he did her wrong, and he was a writer. I believe he um, appropriated her work, um, they, they wrote The Emigrants together, and I believe he took credit for it. But uh, she loved him, and that was her trouble. She always loved the wrong man. Dead cod in the sun. Gilbert. Again and again, Gilbert. Again and again, you leave me for fantasy. Every woman is an idea you come to life for. When we dine, you look over my shoulder. When we shop, you compliment the shop girls throat piece, pretending it would be good for me. As you dance with another, you talk of my brilliance, my genius, Gilbert. You keep talking about me so your partner cannot move away. And after she will say, oh, he loves Mary so much, he did nothing but talk of her as he held me close. He must love her very much, for he leaned against me many times to say her name. I, a woman of words, freeze when I try to tell you this aloud. Now, the thing about Mary that really uh, stayed with me was that she was very surprised the women did, did not join her in her fight for equal education. She knew the men would be against her, but she just couldn't get over the fact that she was despised by everyone, both sexes. There was a rule in England at the time called the rule of thumb, where a man could beat his wife that much, as big as your thumb, and they didn't want to make it any worse. So she actually jumped off the Thames. She tried to commit suicide once with laudamon, and then she jumped off the Thames and did not die because her skirts floated her to the top, and a fisherman found her. This is called Even Death Does Not Want Me. Three weeks in bed, I cannot even plan a suicide, well, it seems, dear diary, you're all I have. Liza and Everina suffer because of my act. A death gone wrong. Leaving me this life as cold as the water. I remember the lifting. I closed my eyes and felt the sweet, sweet, a swirling of relief. And then the noise, the lights, the clamor, cold cobblestones. People in a circle looking down. The bright lanterns, a rough blanket. A loud voice in my ear, ain't that funny? It was her skirts what saved her, 
billowing around her ass. And then a woman. Now she'll think twice of wearing pants. So as I said, she was um, very, still always very shocked that the women um, despised her and uh, she was very much alone. This is called Overheard Today. A vicious sound. Famous lady with her book telling us how to act. I could not hear the rest and leaned in closer to the murmuring until she straightened and then I saw she spoke of me, Mary Wollstonecraft. She held my book, Vindication, and shook it at her partner. My face flushed. Were it a man speaking, I would not crumble. But now I fear my dream is uninhabitable. And all women are in danger unless we pick the bough from the tree ourselves. Yet a stranger was condemning me in a public place. Why not grant me the courtesy given male authors saying it is controversial? Her fury ascends in my body. She said I made her quest for survival all the worse. Because I can read and write? Does this give me a masculine mind or just a mind? We have to understand this was in the 1700s. And so in the 18th century, uh, right now this seems melodramatic perhaps and almost unnecessary. But this was very much cutting the edge in her time. So she did marry William Godwin, who was um, a, a philosopher, and they were bohemians, so they didn't want to get married to each other. They didn't believe in the Church of England. And they finally, when she was pregnant, got married and lived in separate abodes, which actually sounds like it could work. But then she died in childbirth. And as you may know, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, was her daughter. And so I'll just read you um, a poem for William Godwin. She finally found the felicitous relationship she always wanted, but uh, she died because of that. I would cook with berry juice until our clothes were red, roast a lamb in the fire, carve meat for our empty purses, climb the yellow tree with skirts pulled up, sit above London singing my William throat. The candles will burn in all rooms, all day, all summer. I will learn to sew. I will walk backwards until you come home. I will wear your garters, shine your keys, fold your papers for all the world to see, and window sills too. I will perch there in motion with rain in my hair and the taste of cider as sincere as the dark you will come through. So I spent a year actually being Mary Wollstonecraft. So every fact is true, but the words are mine. And I just thought that most historians knew how she, what she did, but I thought it took poetry to show what she might have felt. And I do believe that many of the things I experienced as, even in the 60s and the 70s, as very few women playwrights were being produced, and I was the first woman in the boardroom at PBS, and I think I used some of my own feelings in Mary when she was being held back. But all turned out well because of the time I lived in. So I will close now with a poem in my own voice. Um, many of the poems here are from various books of mine of poetry. And the last book I wrote was called With. 
and it came out last year, and it was about the death of my husband, which did not happen too long ago. And so this poem is from that book. It's called Locator. I don't know why love works, yet it's undeniable. Every line of it hand-tooled like a finely wrought page. This is very exciting, the extra beat that my heart skipped, because marriage is disciplined like an athlete's with the grace of a dance. It's stillness and silence, the end of our differences. Surely our bodies were always prepared for it. I was on the verge of sorrow when I thought of this, this tissue, this sustaining, this, this legend. Here's the door that will not close. The outcome is uncertain. Why do you torture me for explanations? I only know love is the bed of gold we lie on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Grace. What was the line? Be the knife. Be the knife. I feel like that's a way to live. Um, so as a reminder, um, the books are in the hallway. I encourage you to pick up a copy and support the writers. Um, next, we have Richard Hartheis. Uh, he is another poet working in multiple mediums, demonstrating the powerful scope of the written word. Since 2007, Richard has worked as the president of the William Meredith Foundation, an organization dedicated to preserving the legacy of the late U.S. Poet Laureate and his partner of 36 years. For his work in culture when he was uh, a Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia, he was awarded... Ooh, sorry, I just read the lines... Um, Reading is hard, so <laughs> applaud these poets very much. Um, Richard has taught literature and creative writing at a number of institutions over the years, including the Catholic University of America, Mount Vernon College, and Connecticut College. For two years, he directed the Penn Syndicated Fiction Project and created the NPR radio program, The Sound of Writing, serving as writer, director, and host. He has received honors and awards for his work, including fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the DC Commission on the Arts, and the Ford Foundation. He'll be reading from Reunion tonight, and it's his 15th book. So please welcome Richard Hartice. Thank you, Tracy. It's a real pleasure to be here to uh, this town, which I love. My nephew lives here. and. Uh, I was kind of hoping he'd be here, but he didn't turn up, but that's okay. We'll deal with him later. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this book is called Reunion. Uh, last, well, as I became 71 years old last fall, uh, I decided to hook up with uh, family in western Pennsylvania. That was the first reunion. The second reunion was, I was at Georgetown as an undergrad, and we had our junior year abroad in Switzerland. So I met with uh, friends and uh, colleagues there. And then finally, I went down to uh, Bulgaria, where I am a citizen by, uh, after a Fulbright there, and took uh, William's Ashes to the Rila Monastery, which is a, a beautiful world um, cultural religious center, uh, one of the best, uh, most interesting uh, monasteries in the world. 
so this is a story of those three reunions. And this is the uh, cover. In the Black Sea, I found a, a, a sign on the bathroom wall, which is obviously for people who've only ever used a uh, Turkish John. But <laughs> you, you, the proper way is to sit there and read your Koran. You, you're not to stand on it. You're not to wash your hair. <laughs> you're not to do a yoga position with it. So that's what this is about here, this little bit of a joke there. Um, it strikes me that, um, you know, you have to live a while <laughs> before you have something to say. And I think that this is, it became a realization for me. So this is something like a, um, what shall we say, what I did last summer, but at a sort of a higher level of being, uh, contemplating what it's like to get older, what the aging process is about, what might be left for me, uh, where my soul is going to be going. Um, as W.H. Auden says, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? And so that's what this became, a kind of uh, fleshing it out, if you wish. I should mention, too, that uh, the Mystic Seaport did a really beautiful book uh, of William Meredith's poetry. It's a leather-bound journal with archival photos and so forth. And uh, we're going to offer one of those complimentary to anybody who buys either Gracie's book or my book this evening. So that'll be, uh, it's a really a lovely, um, lovely book. I think you'll see um, so Grace and I are old friends. <coughs> She's my soul sister. And I wrote her initially about this book. She says, oh, you're immortal. Please bring us the past, please. Otherwise, we shall have nothing but the present, which I pointed out is not such a bad idea, perhaps. Uh, Eckhart Tolle believes in living in the present. This is the goal to, to live in the present. Um, so the president ain't so bad. At any rate, the, the exchange sent me to Eckhart Tolle once again, who stresses the crucial importance of now. The whole essence of Zen consists in walking along the razor's edge of now, to be so utterly, so completely in the present that no problem, no suffering, nothing that is not who you are in your essence can survive in you. In the now, in the absence of time, all of your problems dissolve. Suffering needs time. It cannot survive in the now. So there are some other roomies I said, for example, past and future veil God from our sight, burn up both of them with fire. And time is what keeps the light from reaching us. There is no greater obstacle to God than time. So these were sort of some of the, the ruminations that I felt as I began this project. <coughs> Um, and so I'm going to skip the Pennsylvania reunion with family, That's, but I'm going to move into the, um, the next reunion. Page 23 here I have. <clears throat> so it's prose and poetry both. And I say here, <clears throat> how quickly we age, how inevitable... I recall standing at the intercoastal walkway staring over at Donald Trump's Mar Ilargo. I live right across the intercoastal there, <clears throat> have a little apartment. A bit like Jay Gatsby staring at the green light on the other side of the water, pining for Daisy and his dream of success in America. The same dream being played out now in Trump's run for the presidency. Mind you, this whole book has been written all through the rise of Donald Trump. <clears throat> 
Seems he is trying to undercut the results of the election even before it's happened, saying it's rigged. Half of America will believe him because they feel their lives are rigged too. How did we get to be a nation of whiners and self-indulgent, selfish spirits? Whatever happened to the greatest generation? I think of the pilot in William's poem who brings his shattered plane into the hangar and reads the books that tell about weather over coffee and cake by himself and then flies off into the night <clears throat> and is never seen again. So as we uh, move along during that interesting year, I have... Um, <clears throat> What was the anecdote my literature teacher told about Wordsworth? This is, refers to Gracie's. Mr. Dor Dorrance was the name. It seems that young Keats went to see the great man and presented him with a copy of his book. In those days, you had to cut the pages yourself as you read the book since they were published in folio. Years later, they found Keats's book in Wordsworth's library and discovered it had never been opened by Wordsworth. The pages had never been cut which led Mr. Dorrance to describe it as the unkindest uncut in all of literary history. <laughs> At any rate, I live in Uncasville, Connecticut, uh, on the, th we say, Thames River there. It's very beautiful. And uh, it's William's farm. And um, this poem is a Labor Day poem. <clears throat> it's called Wood Rot. And I have this woodsman who lives uh, in the, who's renting the main house and... Uh, He's quite a character. He has a big bucket truck, and he goes up and cuts down trees and limbs and so forth. Woodrod. <clears throat> My Paul Bunyan tenant has gloustered out the green glass eyeballs from the plastic owl I have set up to keep the woodpeckers from attacking the house. <clears throat> he needed them for his own craft creation, some kind of ogre in driftwood hiding under a bridge lit up with Christmas lights. Woody and his fellow peckers are no longer scared of the blind bird meant to threaten them away and guard the upper WSA wall where I am taking my morning constitutional. Ho, 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 ho. The woodpecker taps away like some inspired jazz percussionist and no amount of banging on the wall sends him away. Daddy longlegs have begun to make their slow march over the computer and bookcase. Squirrels are beginning to put in a supply of acorns, and a scout bat wings in on occasion to see if this might be a good place to roost. Creatures are taking over now that fall has come, and I sit here like so much wood rot, waiting for the rains to come, and later snow. <clears throat> so it comes to us all, more and more as I begin to see... I steal a lot of photographs here. You can see it's just loaded with photos. Here's the queen uh, from the internet. She's looking quite, quite good, actually. To <laughs> 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 which I say, God save the queen. Here she is waving. Anyway, <clears throat> This uh, little chapter is called Sting is in Tuscany. Sting is in Tuscany. This is how Entertainment Tonight describes the long silences between albums until suddenly a new masterpiece appears. I imagine him in his villa there, working at peace, eating well, contemplating culture and music, and seeing about something new. 
I try to think of River Run, William's home on the Thames River here in Uncasville, as my Tuscany. I walk the dog to the secret garden where I have placed some of William's ashes under the remarkable tree that he wrote of. Fall now, and the deer have begun to eat the fancy Japanese maples and ornamental trees planted there. The angel baby statue stands grieving. Sidney is happy to chase a ball I throw to her. I close my eyes and try to feel his presence once more, hear his answer to the question I pose. This is William's poem. It's called A Couple of Trees. And it's a remarkable tree. It's an enormous uh, V that it makes, this oak tree. The two oaks lean apart for light. They aren't as strong as lone oaks, but in a wind they give each other lee. Daily since I cleared them, I can see them tempting to chainsaw and axe, two hardwoods leaning like that for light. A hurricane tore through the state one night, picking up roof and hen house, boat and dock. Those two stood, uh, leafless, twigless, giving lee. Last summer, ugly slugs unleafed the trees. Environmental kids wrote, gypsy moths suck. The V of naked oaks leaned to the light for a few weeks, then put out slight second leaves, scar tissue pale as bracts, bandaged comrades lending each other lee. How perilous in one another's V our lives are, yoked in this yoke, two men leaning apart for light, but in a wind who give each other lee. Let's see here. I've got chronic dry eye from looking at computers too long. I'm not crying. It's just (laughs) we all have this problem. Once William and I were touring Canada in my little orange Porsche, we called Louis Cronenberger, who had a palatial summer cottage miles away from any town or official campsite, and we were told we could drop in for a drink. When we got there, we were offered a martini at the cocktail party he was hosting for his house guests and were sent on our way without even offer of a shower or a place to pitch our tent. We had been Cronenbergered, a word that came to mean being given the shaft in a major way. Once you have money, you can quite truthfully affirm that money isn't everything, he said famously in an essay, which gives you an idea of what a crank and a snob he was. By the end of the day, at the castle, I felt a little... Well, this is uh, at the other... Okay. Um, the castle is Gruyere. We're in Switzerland now for this uh, class reunion. By the end of the day at the castle, I felt a little like the guy in one of the paintings I saw earlier in the day in the fantastic art room as I turned off the bedside light in my hotel room and thought of what tomorrow might bring. But sometimes a poem comes at night, sometimes early in the morning, and when you cannot sleep, Nancy, my friend who's our treasurer of the the, uh, Meredith Foundation, Nancy cures her insomnia by repeating poems that she knows, as I did, thinking of the time William and I were Cronenbergered. This is called Canada Poem. It grew late. The stars were beginning to fall. We pulled off the side of the road and pitched our tent in an open field. Our sleeping bags were warm as toast. In the morning, 
there was frost on the grass and five beautiful cows with large eyes wondering what had plopped down in the middle of their pasture. <laughs> I think uh, Richard Wilbur said that, uh, of my work that, uh, like William Carlos Williams, it's, it's an aesthetic, nothing but in things. That was uh, William's notion. So sometimes if you can simply get the details correctly, I, uh, one hopes that that makes for poetry. Um, I'll read a poem. As I traveled to Bulgaria, I was invited to the uh, Writers' Union House uh, down on the Black Sea in Sozopol. And <clears throat> in Bulgaria, they had, I'm sure they have it in Kansas and places in America too, but there are acres and acres of sunflowers, which are just fantastic. And uh, it's, a, it's the most beautiful thing. And at the, in the fall, it, they all shut down, of course. And this poem is called The Sunflower. There's a picture of me there in the middle of these dead soldiers. The sunflowers. <coughs> the sunflowers bow their heads to the earth, each a ghost of a summer joy, a lover's kiss, the taste of rose and honey, a child's laughter. The sunflowers are weeping at summer's end, seeds falling like black rain to nourish and renew the spirit of the earth. When lightning rages in the valley, neon cal calligraphy on the black sky, blue augury for winter and the freeze to follow, they stand like Chinese warriors awaiting rebirth or are folded into the earth from which they rose in the eternal cycle. In spring, they rise refreshed, a sea of yellow pleasure for new lovers, replicating the DNA of our love, which gives birth to children and joy and sunflowers. <coughs> um, <coughs> I don't want to overdo my stay here. So you tell me, Grace, even though. I think you're fine. Um, <coughs> So here we are at the Rila Monastery. There's this wonderful dog who looks very much like my own dog that we met on that was magical. As we walked up the hill, a beautiful dog lay curled at, in sleep at the foot of the, of the staffs that the monks had obviously carved for hikers to borrow. The dog looked exactly like my own dog, Sydney, except that she was white where Sydney is silver. But the head and the markings were the same. She was a mountain dog, apparently, and had come mysteriously down from the hills and lived on the kindness of taxi drivers and tourists who gave her scraps. I put out my hand, and she seemed to know me immediately. <clears throat> she lifted herself from her bed and led us up the hill. This is the film crew and so forth. I had meant this to be a private trip, but uh, it was determined that William was a... a rank and stature and needed to be followed by national press and so forth, so we did that. I, kept, I had kept William's ashes in a carved wooden box with a screw-top lid that had been given or pinched from an English cousin the time we visited her at the end of her life at Oxford. Later that night, the cameraman got a close-up of the small white cloud as I poured his ashes into greenery along the pathway. We said the Our Father and returned to the monastery and a small cafe behind the monastery. More vodka for Lydia, more rakia <coughs> for me, 
and coke for Marty. I gave him now my coat because he was shivering, and by then I was too. Lots of jokes about being abandoned, but it was getting serious. A taxi would take another hour to come for us. But the head of the parking, a man who had lived in Hyannis on Cape Cod, yet another beauty, offered to take us back to town for $20, and in hopes his boss would not be back before then. He put us into a lovely warm VW, and we were off, rolling down the mountain, dodging the massive trucks and blue-uniformed workers who would be there till seven or later, trying to meet the deadline of getting the road completed. The driver left me at my hotel. I got a good nap uh, before we all reconnoitered for dinner at Diva along the river running through Blagovgrad. This was to be Lucien's treat, and we told him we were going to have massive desserts when we caught up with him at Diva. But before the dinner and the nap, as the driver pulled up to the hotel, Marty rolled down his window and said to me, we did something very good here. Um, if I had a couple more short pieces here. One, let's see. On the bus, they have great buses uh, from the Black Sea back to Sofia. This little kid was sitting in the front. His mother was homeschooling him. It was really a, a charming way to travel. When I see this little boy, I think of the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook. This little boy must have been <clears throat> about the same age as those children. I was on Fisher's Island teaching the day when it occurred, and I recalled the child in the computer room who said to me at the end of the day, look what happened. This is called Sandy Hook Revisited for Anne Murray Murphy, Christopher Dillon Hockney, and Senator Chris Murphy. As he was learning to read, to read people and to read life, to know what danger is, to know what is needed to succeed, all the big lessons, in came a monster who began slaying the playmates the boy was beginning at last to play with. This was not a storybook monster, real slaughter everywhere. How could you trust anything if you had already trouble trusting what it meant to be a friend? to trust his eyes. She took him in her arms to give him a flickering moment of fragile reassurance, being human, loving each other, how he needed to play today, she lied to him. In his confusion, she was able to give him this moment of hopeful distraction before the bullets cut through them like a sword and she wrapped him up with a mother's instinct. And they left us like angels to the sky, to the unknown. Mm. I should be a little careful about reading that poem. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It was, well, it was quite a thing for us, you know, in, in Connecticut when that happened. And it was, well, for everybody. But it was really an amazing trauma for us all. Um, I have two quick little pieces. <clears throat> One of my favorite commercials when I got home to American television was for an insurance company selling homeowner's insurance. <clears throat> the guy goes in and tries to file a claim for his air conditioner. The agent wrinkles her nose and says, no, air conditioners aren't covered in your homeowners. Well, what is covered, he asks. Well, things like an earthquake, volcanoes, a zombie apocalypse. 
in the window outside the office, we see zombies stumbling around and a woman who is not a zombie screaming, Zombie Apocalypse! <laughs> Seems we've had a zombie apocalypse. A whole nation of deplorables, not just a basket of deplorables. And Trump is now scheduled to be our president. The day after inauguration, D.C. is looking for a million women march to protest his misogyny, among other deplorable positions. My thinking is, well, he won, though not fairly as I see it. What can we do but just give him a shot and see what he does, though I can't help but feel he is just mooning us big time to follow the super moon theme here. Sydney <laughs> um, and I... <coughs> We'll have to go to Florida and try to remain incognito. Here's Sydney being incognito. Since we live just across the intercoastal Mari Largo, among other deplorables on the board at my condo, we'll keep a low profile like the cool dude on TV who drives a Volvo and like the crafty fox who owns the east and the west, north and south, and all of it will be beautiful to me. Sydney and I will come back in the spring and she can guard the point from the swans again this summer. And next, next supermoon will come January 2nd, 2018, just in time for the midterm elections. Perhaps by then things will have worked out. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. Good. Thanks very much for everybody turning up. And Gracie, your great poems, too. Shall we uh, move to Yes. So you both can move here um, for the joint Q&A. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. Yeah. Maybe time is in the trees. Richard's one of the only geniuses I really know. Truly. Um, so we are podcasting the event. So um, I'm going to be running the mic back and forth between you two and the questions. Uh, I'll move quickly. If you can hold your question until I get the mic to you so we can have it preserved. You may have to steal that mic. We have an event at the Bulgarian Embassy Saturday, this Saturday, from uh, six to eight. And you're, sorry, you're welcome to, to join us at the Bulgarian Embassy from six to eight. We need to have your name. But it'll be a very nice evening. Barbara Goldberg will be there. Gracie will be there. Gene Nordhoff. Gene Nordhoff will be a whole um, gaggle of geese. <laughs> Lovely poets and uh, good refreshments. And it's free and open to the public. So if you're thinking, if you'd like to join us, please let me know your name for security purposes. And we can uh, put you on the address. The address. It's 22nd and R, and we're right near DuPont uh, Circle. 1621 in our students. It's 20, it's right at the corner of 27. But we really welcome. Questions? Gracie, I'm just wondering of all the women out there, how you chose just these particular ones for the for your book. That's a good question. I really, it's really from the heart. Truly, there's just our Anna Nicole, 
I always felt very bad about the way she was treated. I mean, as a young person, she had been raped by her father, her arm was broken by her brother, her mother disowned her. I mean, she really was, her, her life was just unbelievable. And so, when I told you, I saw her when she giving birth to the baby, and she had no makeup on, and these beautiful cheekbones, and I saw that without her makeup, that there was an inner person there, and that was what my fetish was about. So it was purely a, a, a heart connection there. Also, Mary Wollstonecraft, I was in graduate school at the University of Maryland in 75, at fourth, after raising four children, and uh, I came across, I was studying 18th century literature, and I came across Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, and Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley is the person who gets all the press because she wrote Frankenstein. And I could not understand why nobody knew about her mother. Her, literally, there were only 12 books at that time written on Mary Wollstonecraft in 74. And nobody even knew about her because, as a common theme anyway. And I was amazed. Here she had done so much groundbreaking, groundbreaking work. And here she had put her own personal body hitting against all of the customs of English law and uh, subjection and had personally taken so much, so many hits. And so I just sat, and she just sat and sat me for 25 years and incubated. And then I just, she had, she wanted out. She wanted out. And I just simply uh, sat down and wrote for a year. I did have, since I had studied her in graduate school, I did have facts. And I put, I literally used my words and my feelings into the historicity. And I love the fact that she, uh, in my play, Punch of Judy say, she wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with men, but she better stay, but she always was underneath of them. <laughs> so she, terrific conflict. And so she brought me in that way, intellectually. And then another woman, uh, Harriet Powers, who was an ex-slave, uh, was a genius quilt maker. And the Smithsonian commissioned me to write uh, a screenplay about her. Nothing was known about her but five things. So I spent a year researching her and found that she was a genius that was unknown. So that was given to me for another reason, as a commission. Then in my own life, I, another one of my champions is Mrs. P. And she's married to Mr. P. And they're both, um, they, ha they don't remember each other because they're in Pinecrest Rest Haven, but they fall in love and hate it again and again. So Mrs. P is another kind of character. And I think she's kind of an alter ego because I always thought my husband and I would wind up in a nice, happy rest home with dinner at six. And so they came to me from four different stripes from the heart connection with Anna, from the intellectual connection with Mary Wollstonecraft, from uh, Mrs. P because of domesticity in my own life, 60 years, I had married 60 years, and, um, and because I was commissioned to find out about Harriet Powers. But in each one of my things, I realized only after I looked back over all of them in this book that it's all about vindication. Everything I wrote was about vindication. So that had to be about something going on inside of me.
More questions? Sister Grace Elsa, in your poems there are some wonderful moments you like crystal crystals of social clarity or psychological clarity, like in Anna Nicole Smith when, when you were talking about how um, she slept with people so she wouldn't be raped by them. And I was wondering, how did you, did you get into the poem thinking of that, or did it come out of the writing? Oh, that's such a good question. I reviewed her book before she asked that question. <laughs> we can set this thing up. Um, so I actually jotted images down for a year about women that were uh, having a rough time. And one, actually, I think I might have heard on television one of those intervention things that someone said they didn't want to be raped. And then I saw on another sociological program, if a woman, a woman gets raped, she loses her soul. And boy, those two just work together. And I thought, well, this is perfect for Anna. Because when you're working on a project, everything you see and hear feeds into that. It's, as you know, as writers. Everything I saw and heard was all about Anna for one year. you know. And that was, uh, those two just went together. And I give myself to a man, I won't lose my soul. Because I won't get raped. How sad is that? What's the male's viewpoint on that? I think that, well, I think, thank you. Uh, yes, I mean, I taught at Women's College for many years, but I, I think of Elizabeth Taylor, as I know, as you're talking. And she, you know, married so often and so forth, but she always was in love. And she only married when she was in love. And she wouldn't have sex when she got married. She was, it was kind of a remarkable um, position that she took about marriage and what it meant. People fault her for being kind of a slut or whatever, that she had married so frequently and so on. But, but when you think about it, she she had to be in love, and she, you know, and then when she was, she married, and uh, I don't know if that touches no, it does. on, on the, the notion of losing one's soul. I mean, in certain cultures, if you take a photograph of someone, uh, that's a similar idea, that you capture their soul somehow. Um, to Yes, a violation, and I, I, one can imagine uh, the, the, the trauma of, of rape and what that would mean. Um, I think it's maybe a little romantic or imaginative to say that one's soul is taken. I don't know. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Women would know, perhaps. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's very interesting. First of all, about... Um, Marrying someone before you have sex, that's a very Victorian notion. So Elizabeth Taylor was quite approved, actually. But um, the idea that if someone rapes you, that you lose your soul, I think that's quite ironic. I mean, you are not the perpetrator, and so why should you pay the tariff? And there, that, that to me was, the irony of that was just astounding to me. It, it depends on how you would define soul, probably. You know, if... if if you're talking about one sense of who you are, um, personality, um, that kind of emotional, psychological trauma, uh, one can certainly understand that. To say that you, you lose your soul, um, yes, and, uh, and maybe no, I don't know. 
I think the epitome, to have it epitomized that way was, on television, the woman who said that was uh, exaggerating it for the purpose of dr the dramatic act that she could not quite find language for. I'd oh. just like to say men get raped too. Yes. So you have to ask men who've been raped. Oh. You know. I mean, prisons, prisons are full of it. Oh, yes. So you're going to have to ask those people. You know, from what I know, it takes them a long time to recover mm -hmm. on every single level. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But since I was writing about a character, I used that to feed into her, her portrait. Just making sure I'm getting everyone. So Grace, given how important this book is and how profound and moving it is to listen to you about the lives of these women, um, who are the next women that you're going to think about writing? And, uh, and will you? And will you please? That's very interesting. Sid wants to say something. Sid wants to say Question something. Question or? Oh, it's just a, it's a comment about Grace's writing. Okay. I think um, you know, I was just going to say that Anne Boleyn, for one, was very well educated. And at that time, in the Tudor courts, many of the court ladies were. And as I've thought about that over the years because I've researched her, I think to some extent, at a certain time in their lives, it made them more attractive, more remarkable. But once they received, once they occupied positions of power, it actually worked against them. It sure didn't help her in the long run because of all the intrigues of all the European powers and France and all of those days. The fact that they were known to have private lives based on their educations put them in suspicion because of, yeah. of espionage, intrigue, and everything. That's exactly what happened to Anne. You know, yeah. At first, Henry VIII was very attracted to her because of that. In the long run, it made him more suspicious of her because she was capable of operating on her own. That's a good and point. I think in the, late, in the early 16th centuries and late 15th centuries, you know, during the Wars of the Roses and everything, I, I think that that's the position. You know, the women of independent means, you know, the women of the noble strata, nobility, were encouraged to develop certain skills. But once they had in adulthood, I think it worked, it worked against them okay. because men became suspicious of them. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to say one thing about Mary Wollstonecraft, she came from a very poor stock, sure. and so it wasn't available to her. Right. Um, to answer your question, I am working on a play now which is just awful, because <laughs> I have you ever known these married couples that are together for 50 years and they don't speak to each other? And that has not been on the stage as I I mean, it's not Virginia Woolf. It's not anything as dramatic as Goat or anything obvious. It's just that long, burning, tedious, uh, erosion, and I see so many couples that have, I said to my Aunt Betty once, how did you stay married to Uncle Skippy? And she said, we just never speak to each other. So I was trying to form out a woman who, and a man, who keep missing each other's needs. And it's very difficult because it's very, it's not um, something I can love. So I'm not sure how far I'll, I'll go. But this woman, there will be vindication in a 
away. It may be interior, I'm not sure. And that is, um, I always have a woman character. I think I don't know much about men except what I read in their poems. I had a husband who was an artist and wasn't typical of every man. Uh, I had a father who was remote and I had no brothers or sons. So I think I tend toward the knowledge of females. And so I'll ask Richard what he's working on next. Well, um, I'm on my way to Oaxaca, Mexico, for a uh, film festival there. Um, my screenplay's been accepted, and it's um, it's a sequel to E.M. Forrester, The Last Book Morris, if you know that book, know that film that Merchant and Ivory did. And uh, so I went to the Forrester estate and said, I, I know how this story ends. If you, if you happen to see the film, um, these two young men are in front of a fire, and you know, Scudder says, and now we shan't never be separated, and a big sloppy kiss and all that. And, and what happens then? Well, you know, they move into their middle age and their, their middle years, and that's what this story is really about. So I didn't get permission to do the English sequel, so I set them in Ireland, which is a whole other <laughs> problem, because the uh, country was just being created at that time, and. Uh, and so I, I really had to pull in an awful lot of history and, and learn a lot, an awful lot about the formation of Ireland, why these guys would have left. But anyway, these two guys come to America in 1911, just before World War One, and they live out their lives between the great wars. And uh, it's, it's really a very complex plot uh, upstairs, downstairs. Could be a mini series, as a matter of fact. I think that's what you always go for the Well, I think that's you know I've, I've shown it to the Rose Group at one point, and they they felt that the mini series is what, what it really ought to be. But I think it's uh, you know at that period you could go to jail or you could you know you could be killed for being uh, homosexual, and um, so I think it does speak to an earlier period in our own country's history uh, in terms of the LGBTQ. Um, but that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. But I'm, I'm thinking, too, of Hillary Clinton's book now, and Katie Couric, who has a book as well, and you see a lot of flap about this and in terms of who these women are and what, what Hillary's... You know, she was... We used to go to the White House when she was a first lady um, because Bill was a classmate. And she loved Williams' poetry, and I, I got to know her a little bit, and it's, it's interesting to, you know, how can you be so hated, <laughs> you know, by so many people to deal with that? It must be a terrible thing for, for this woman who, you know, she gave so much of her, um, people just don't like her, and, I, and it's amazing to me that she did such good work in many ways, she was Secretary of State, and and uh, a phenomenal person, a smart lawyer, and uh, so on. But uh, to have to deal with that now, what happened, you know, for her, it must be really difficult. And then Katie Couric, who's saying, who's making a lot of hay out of the fact that she was, uh, you know, the big um, anti-Trump uh, spokesperson or something. Uh, I, I, I'm not too big on Katie Couric. <laughs> I'm okay with Hillary, but not so big on Katie. But, but these are two women now who are really kind of in the spotlight, um, and I think they're, they're quite different in, in many ways. And um, I don't know what you think about them as a possible I don't think it's relevant to my yeah. I, would, I was thinking, I was speaking to someone about 
Uh, I would love to write about a woman like Hillary because uh, we will never have anyone quite like that. And I won't go, since I'm not working on that, I'm not interested in talking about that. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. It's fabulous. Um, question for Grace. Um, I'm just wondering, sort of energy-wise, when you finish like the persona poem and that sort of wandering through that world, and then make it trace back to what the personal is in terms of the personal being an elegy too. I just wonder yeah. <clears throat> how you kind of companion yourself between those two things. They seem really different to me, but they seem like. They're very charging in different ways, so I was wondering what you, um, how you navigate your way through those charges. What is your name? Oh, my name is Sandra Evans Falconer. I'm a writer, yeah. poet, person, but I'm just, and I love the persona poems, but I also am very drawn to the, um, the elegy everywhere, and I was just curious how you. Thank I just you. find it very charging. I just wonder what you, um, what you do with that. Thank you. You're so um, first of all, I love the word charging, and that's why I wanted to know your name, and next I love your hair. Um, I, when I get into a persona, I get into that person, and I'm there for a year. And Ken, my husband, used to say, when she comes down for breakfast, I don't have too much of have a British accent or a black dialect. You know, whatever it is I'm home working with. But um, when it comes to my own personal life, uh, I cannot write that at the same time that I'm occupying a psychosis. <laughs> it's a folly of do with me. I actually, uh, am, I actually enter into Mary Wollstonecraft, and I actually enter into Anna Nicole, and it's a, a form of a, a, a lovely fantasy. But in my own, so when I when Ken died, I wrote. I had to write right away what I felt because I couldn't wait. I just had to get it out, and I wrote a memoir, and then I wrote with. And I wrote the man who got away. So in those three, those years, I did write for seven poems because I really, I had to understand. I had to understand what we were together, and it was tempestuous. I mean, six we had six marriages in sixty years. I think I felt everything a human being can feel, and who could ask for anything more in life? Really, it all wasn't good. But it was all great feeling. So when I do that, I haven't time to be enter anyone else's reality. How about you and Lauren? Well, I was thinking that when I came out of the Peace Corps, I had a novel that a writer's often their first book is their tell-all, first novel, so it's a very standard kind of thing. And I was so, so obsessed with it, and I just couldn't get away from it. And my friend William said he, he actually asked me if he could finish it, if he could change it, put it into the third person for me. I said, oh, no, 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 this I is a persona, you know, and it's, it's not really me, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it turned out that what I needed to do was to just drop that book. And instead, my first book was 14 Women. And the idea was to change your sex in, in trying to... to get some creative distance from your own personal experience. That was important for me. And it was successful. It was a way for me to break through and to break out of this obsessive rumination about what went on, you know, losing love and all the kind of things that went on in the Peace Corps. 
And, you know, trying to imagine what it's like to be the Blessed Virgin Mary holding your dead son in a pieta kind of falling. Or um, it really forced me to uh, use my own creativity. And I think that was an important lesson for me uh, by you know, writing these poems. Thinking about you know my aunt Betty who was an alcoholic who was a sweet woman though and was you know um, just different people who women who I'd known and, and and I was teaching at Mount Vernon College for women too in the, in the 70s it was a very popular um, kind of political position to, to have uh, feminism and so forth but that that was that was important for me to try to transcend my own imagination, as it were, to really make it a creative act rather than uh, simply oozing. We have time for one more question. I will ask it. Um, for the both of you, um, present company excluded, um, what upcoming books are you really excited about? Of other people's? Of other people's. Or, mm -hmm. or someone's writing that you're really excited about right now? Well, I've been asked to, um, I, I, this is a secret, I guess we can't make this announcement yet, but James Bell is a wonderful poet, um, local poet, and uh, I'm going to be writing an introduction to his poetry, and I'm living with his poetry right now. Uh, it's a wonderful comedy. He uses both halves of his brain. He's a scientist, he's a physicist, and, um, and a lyric poet, and uh, this is a beautiful combination of, uh, let's say, both sides of his brain, and um, that's a book that, and I'm a publisher as well, so we have um, two new books, one uh, by Andrew Orkey, who has passed, but it's called uh, Africa Poem, Cake, Af Elephant Cakewalk. I, I think I have a copy here I can show you. Um, Sid was just describing uh, his friend Laura Bradowski Miller, who has a book called uh, First Do No Harm. She was a physician assistant in surgery, um, and quite an interesting one, an aristocratic woman, often her home in Bellagio now, but nevertheless uh, worked in the hospice uh, situation. And uh, Elisabetta Ritchie has a new book out with us as well called Harbingers. And uh, so it, if you get to the embassy on Saturday night, you'll meet all these people, and uh, it's a genuine invitation. So if you can uh, think about coming. But those are, those are James Bell is where I'm, what, what I'm thinking of right now, someone whose work I'm going to be published. Well, no, I won't be the publisher, but I'll be have a hand in uh, what is said about it and how it's uh, approached as uh, contemporary uh, criticism. Um, I have reviewed several books every month, and I have a, a I have an obsession, and it is that women can't go there. That I look at women on stage, and I see something like Albie, who wrote Goat about uh, a man who's having an affair with a goat, and it's not a joke, and finds the great love and tenderness that his wife can't go. And he goes, I mean, he has found the greatest betrayal. If you're, I mean, if my husband loved a man, I'd understand it. And if he loved a woman, I'd understand it. If he loved a goat, that is rejection. <laughs> that is rejection. So, I mean, but a woman could not write that play. And so I've been obsessed about why women 
cannot actually do on stage, do what Sam Shepard does, and I, it bothers me very much, whether it's our DNA or our acculturation. So um, I found a woman who goes there, and she's a poet, she's called Linda Sanchez, and she, and it's art, there's a difference between vulgarity and art, and she really goes there, and so I'm very interested in her. I interviewed Tracy K. Smith today for Public Radio, and I find her to be fascinating, her book, Life on Mars. Uh, I, there's many, many, uh, many, many writers, and I think the predominant group of writers that I'm reviewing right now are the African-American writers. They are rocking. They're rocking the ship. And I have, out of 15 I reviewed this month, I think, the top three were African-American writers, very bold. And, you know, they talk about racism, but not in a blatant way, not to, like a diatribe, but in very subtle ways. Tracy Smith's new book, Wade in the Water, is she uses found poems of the black Civil War soldiers who wrote letters to Lincoln. And it literally, their words about how they needed $20 and they had the legs shut off and they weren't paid since last May. You know, that's teaching history. So there's so much to love. Well, put so much to love. Wow. Well, thank you, Grace. Thank you, Richard. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, we have some time to get books, talk to the writers. Um, so I hope you all have a wonderful night. Thank you.